The news continues. Let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN tonight. Laura. What an articulate panel, Anderson. Thank you so much. I, ha I couldn't let it go. I have to tell you, I'm glad to see you. Glad to see you're back and safe. And yes, I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. President Biden's trailblazing Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, is still answering questions tonight on day two of her confirmation hearings. We're going to check back live shortly on that historic confirmation. There could also be some more contentious questioning when Senator Marsha Blackburn is up. The last Republican, by the way, to test Jackson on her record today. And this has been a long day. In fact, 12 hours and counting, including a few breaks in between. And it's been, dare I say, a dramatic day. We're going to unpack some of those moments ahead. But there are also major developments overseas we want to bring you up to speed on. Ukrainian forces have made some major strides today in taking back some of the territory the Russians have gained. But the Putin bombardment is intensifying in and around the capital of Kiev. A day of smoke filling the sky and on the ground. And the fighting, make no mistake, is fierce. Schools like this one in Kharkiv now bear the scars of war. So does a psychiatric hospital in southern Ukraine destroyed by bombing. The city of Mariupol reduced to ashes. But even the Kremlin tonight is admitting to CNN Putin hasn't been able to achieve his goals yet in Ukraine. And quite relevant to that point, U.S. and NATO officials tell CNN it's likely the country of Belarus could soon be called in as backup for Russian forces. Let's begin now with Fred Pleitkin, who's in Kiev. Fred, it's nice to see you. I have to ask you, what is the status right now of this Ukrainian counterattack that's happening there? Well, I mean, I can tell you, certainly there was a lot of intense fighting around the Ukrainian capital. And, um, you know, we're under a curfew and we have been uh, since, since last night, uh, actually. And there were some who believed that maybe that was because the Ukrainians might have been moving forces around the capital uh, uh, city for that possible counteroffensive. And you can see some of the pictures there uh, on, on, on your screen right now. That's really the site that we've been seeing the entire day. The city was really surrounded by black smoke. There were a lot of impacts. There was a lot of outgoing fire, some incoming fire. Uh, also as well in general, a very kinetic day and certainly one where that was the picture that people uh, were seeing. It's really unclear what exactly is going on. What we do know is that it's happening around the north of Kiev, and that's where those Russian forces have been essentially stalled for quite a while now by those Ukrainian forces who've been viciously fighting back. Now, the big question, uh, as you've noted, Laura, is whether or not that's some sort of counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have launched or whether or not it's Russian forces who are trying to make an additional push on the Ukrainian capital because, of course, they've been trying to encircle the Ukrainian capital. It certainly seems from our vantage point. We were actually close to that area uh, yesterday, and the Ukrainians were moving some serious weaponry into that area. So it could very well be that they're trying to launch some sort of counteroffensive. And you know, you showed those uh, pictures at the beginning of those fighters on the ground in that fierce firefight. We could actually hear um, small arms fire, fire bursts, machine gun fire from our position right here, not very far uh, from, from where we are right now. So ground fire could clearly be heard. A lot of those strikes could clearly be heard. And one of the things that was one of the biggest bangs that we heard today was the Ukrainians said that they shot down a missile that the Russians shot at the uh, Ukrainian capital, Kiev, that was apparently taken down and the remnants landed in the Dnieper River, which is, of course, the river that runs here through the Ukrainian capital. So 
Too early to tell whether this is a counteroffensive, too early to tell whether the, uh, the Ukrainians have actually made any gains today, but they certainly believe, I think it's important, they certainly believe that right now in this part of Ukraine, they have the Russians on the back foot, Laura. Well, two important phrases you've used tonight, the idea of a counter and also the idea of reclaiming the area. These are areas in talking about the conversation. We know there's a mm. huge propaganda and disinformation campaign happening within Russia on the assumption that they're trying to suggest that Ukraine has always been on the offensive and that they are attacking the Russian military. So this is actually really important to follow along and figure out what is happening here and how it'll be relayed. But also, as you mentioned, how close Kiev is to these areas, you know, given how close Kiev is to Belarus. We've learned that they might have Belarus possibly joining Russia. What would that mean in the long run? I mean, would this be an essentially a way to reinvigorate the Russian military forces? Are there concerns about the might and strength and logistical prowess of the Belarus army as well, our military? I think I think that certainly could be a threat, and that certainly could be one of the things that the Russians uh, might be planning. Of, uh, of course, as you say, it seems as though the Russians are having massive logistical problems, especially around here in Kiev. And and the quickest way to get to Kiev for the Russians is indeed via Belarusian territory, or to just call on the Belarusian army. Uh, there have been some who have been suggesting that perhaps the Russians have been trying to draw in the Belarusians for an extended period of time already. Of course, you have Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko. He's very much a client of Vladimir Putin. Really, in order to remain in power, he re relies on Vladimir Putin. It's very important for him. And, and Lukashenko, in the past, he's made suggestions that he would fight on the side of the Russians if it's something that would become necessary. So far, what the U.S. is saying is they say they don't really see moves right now that are imminent to see that the uh, Belarusians might be uh, preparing to go to battle. However, NATO is saying, NATO officials, and also the Ukrainians themselves, they do believe that that is something that could happen very quickly. Uh, the Belarusian army is one that is also quite large, uh, but not necessarily one that's very well uh, equipped. So certainly they could to a great extent, invigorate the Russian army, especially here in the fight around Kiev. But whether or not in the long run the Ukrainians wouldn't be able to fend them off, that's, that's a whole other uh, matter. Again, at this point in time, it's really unclear whether the Belarusians are going to join the battle. It would certainly have major consequences for that country. The U.S. has already said if the Belarusians attack Ukraine, there would be massive sanctions uh, on that country, massive sanctions on the country's leadership. But, you know, right now, there's been a lot of things uh, in this conflict that we have thought would be taboo, that we have thought would never happen, that then in the end did happen. So uh, very unclear what Alexander Lukashenko's long-term thinking is, and of course also very unclear to what extent Vladimir Putin is really trying to draw Lukashenko into this and join the fight on the part of the Russian army against the Ukrainians. It's certainly something Ukrainians are looking out for, something that they are extremely concerned about, and where you can already see them reinforcing those forces that they have close to the Belarusian border and really trying to keep the Belarusians away, Laura. Really important to think about the calculus at stake here and wanting to enter into the invasion, knowing the risk, knowing what you've reported. And again, it wasn't more than 27 days ago when we were hearing intelligence about these very issues, about what we thought would not occur now having occurred. So those intelligence communities were following along very closely. Fred Plankton in Kiev, thank you so much for your time tonight. We'll keep hearing from you on these really important issues. And we're also just learning, by the way, that President Biden plans to slap sanctions this week on hundreds of Russians who are serving in the country's lower legislative body. That, according to an official familiar with the announcement, 
Biden is expected to unveil the new sanctions on members of the Duma while in Europe. Nick Robertson has spent more than three decades covering Russia and is in Brussels ahead of the president's visit. Nick, you know, what does it mean to now target more members of the Duma? We've got the oligarchs having been targeted, obviously sanctions imposed more generally, the conversations surrounding Vladimir Putin himself. What does this mean to now target in this more comprehensive way in this level of government? Yeah, it broadens the signal to the Russian legislature, to the Russian people, and particularly to President Putin, uh, that there are few people who are in the government of Russia who are not going to be targeted. Um, what President Biden is announcing here really sort of brings the United States more into line with what the European Union here in Brussels have already done. They already sanctioned uh, 351 members of that lower house of parliament, the Duma, back right at the beginning of the conflict when the Duma recognized the independence of the separatist areas Luhansk and Donetsk in Ukraine. And for the EU, that was a red line. So they put sanctions on the Duma members back then. And I think that's what we're going to see more uh, of between President Biden and the European Union, NATO and G7 allies here in Brussels over the coming days will be plugging the gaps in differences between all sides on the sanctions that they have, plugging the gaps uh, where Russia is finding the loopholes uh, in sanctions and, and workarounds at the moment. That was something that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan indicated in an interview that he thought that the additional sanctions could be coming, but they'd also be looking at plugging those holes. And we heard from the EU foreign policy chief here, uh, Josip Borrell, just uh, over the past couple of days, saying that do expect sanctions, do expect expect more work on sanctions, but don't expect those sanctions to come into effect this week per se, he said, because whatever's discussed here, they're going to need to take it away. Different nations are going to need to take it away and work out, you know, just how these will be enforced, how any decisions made this week could be enforced. Nick Robertson, it'll be really important to see how the president of the United States addresses the fact that he was not in lockstep with the other nations about the imposition of sanctions and why it wasn't the similar red line for the United States. I'm sure it'll be part of the conversation along with the refugee humanitarian crisis. You'll, we'll learn more this week. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. You know, we're also obviously watching Capitol Hill this hour. Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn is expected to grill Judge Jackson at any moment at her day two of the confirmation hearing for her Supreme Court nomination. We'll take you there. But up next, how seriously do we need to take the Kremlin dangling the nuclear option for all of the world to fear? Military perspective from former NATO commander and retired general Wesley Clark is up next. The Pentagon's assessment is that Russians are, quote, near desperate to gain any momentum in Ukraine. That is why this comment from Putin's spokesperson to Christian Amanpour pressed about nuclear weapons is, well, so concerning. You can read all the reasons for nuclear uh, arms to be used. So if it is an ex existential threat for our country, then it can be used in accordance with our concept. Well, that certainly provides no comfort that they will not be used. 
Retired General Wesley Clark is the former Supreme Allied Commander for NATO. General, thank you for joining us tonight. First, I want to get your initial reaction on the idea that they would not rule out the use of nuclear weapons. And again, contextualize that for us, General, if you can, on the idea of what is being perceived as desperate actions and measures that are already being enacted by the Russian military through Vladimir Putin. Yeah, well, Russian military doctrine doesn't rule out first use of nuclear weapons. They accept first use of nuclear weapons. In their exercises, they always assume that if they're losing to NATO, they will use nuclear weapons. They call this escalate to de-escalate. The usual target is Poland. And um, from the beginning of this, Mr. Putin has brandished his nuclear weapons, threatened them, and it's, it's a fact that his conventional military is not performing well in Ukraine. Now, that battle is far from decided, but the Ukrainians have put up a much stiffer de- de- resistance and uh, and the Russian military is having a very hard time taking over the country. So Mr. Putin's going to escalate. He, his emissaries have gone out to a number of countries and said, you must not sell weapons to Ukraine, including allies like Israel, who are not supporting Ukraine and other countries. Uh, and he's giving specific threats to countries like Georgia. And he's made specific threats to the United States, obviously, because this is what the president's warning was about last night on cyber. We don't know what the specifics of it were, but it wasn't just a general statement. It was a very pointed statement by the president of the United States. And he certainly made Putin has certainly made specific warnings to Poland as recently as within the last 48 hours that if they don't support Ukraine, he will take action against preventive action uh, against Polish cities. And so by the way, also, General, excuse me, on that, excuse me, um, and I agree with the idea of the escalation being taken very seriously, but I just want to put a fine point on the point you just made. You know, the idea that there are interim measures that Putin is exploring, and, and particularly cyber attack en route to potentially escalate to de-escalate, what does it say to you that he is asking for um, the Belarusian military to possibly be involved? And given just a few days ago, we had we heard from, of course, President Biden in his discussion with the president of China, and they have remained on the sidelines. Can we expect something similar in terms of what the Belarusian um, military might do and might be involved in or not? I think the Belarusian military is resisting being ordered in. And I'm hearing that the soldiers and lower level commanders do not want to be in there. They don't consider Ukraine an enemy. They don't want to go in. On the other hand, President Lukashenko has got his arm twisted up pretty far up his back from Mr. Putin. And Mr. Putin doesn't care about Belarus except using it as a platform and trying to get this war with Ukraine finished on his terms. So, uh, yes, he would love to have Belarusian forces in there. But I think he's going to have a very hard time getting them to engage. If they do engage, they're not going to be terribly effective based on what we know now. Speaking, General, of the idea of effectiveness, I mean, the tactics that have been used by the Russian military, I mean, the use of hypersonic missiles, for example, targeting areas that, frankly, are not commensurate with the level of force that are being used. I want to play for a second what John Kirby had to say just today on the issue and the use of hypersonic missiles. Let's listen to this. They took out a a storage facility with it, or at least reportedly took out a storage facility with it. Um, That's a... Uh, that's a pretty significant sledgehammer to take to to uh, to a target like that. 
So, General, why use such a significant sledgehammer to crib the language of John Kirby? What does this suggest to you that they're using these types of weapons to remove parts of infrastructural storage facility units in Ukraine? You know, Mr. Putin is increasingly frustrated. He's desperate. His conventional military doesn't work that well. The high-tech stuff, the hypersonics, the nuclear probably works well. And um, he's going to escalate. He's going to try to find ways to succeed if he can't win it directly on the ground. So when you hear this, and I'm thinking about, obviously, for the audience's sake, when you're talking about a hypersonic missile, why is this such a imbalance of the use of this? And does it suggest that there is a, uh, a void and a, um, uh, not enough military options and weaponry that could be more precise in other areas? Does this somehow give hope in some respects to the Ukrainian military that they have to resort to such tactics? Well, it does. It says that the Ukrainian military must be capable of shooting down some incoming missiles that are less sophisticated. So with a hypersonic, you know it's going to get through, presumably, if it functions properly. You cannot intercept it with existing technology. Uh, But it's also a psychological measure. He could have tried it with conventional uh, missiles. Those conventional missiles usually don't get intercepted, but the hypersonic won't. It's advertised. He wants to create fear and terror in the West so that we hang back, let the Ukrainians slug it out on their own without support so we can roll over them. It's all part of a coordinated uh, psychological drama uh, as well as a terrible humanitarian tragedy being orchestrated by Mr. Putin. In general, it strikes me as quite interesting, and that's for lack of a better word, because it's diabolical in many respects as you're describing it. But the idea of the psychological strategy you know, juxtaposed to the lack of military preparedness in being involved in the invasion, it strikes me at a time when diplomacy is at least being continually contemplated as a way to, you know, stop the invasion. How do you think discussions like the President of the United States will have this week with other member um, countries of NATO and talking about these conversations, including in Warsaw as well in Poland, is diplomacy even a viable prospect when you're talking about the extent of the psychological warfare that you've described? Well, in the first place, I think any diplomacy is going to reflect the facts on the ground. And unless the facts are that Putin has lost decisively and wants to withdraw, any diplomatic settlement is going to go against Ukraine. And President Zelensky is going to have a very hard time with his population after they're fighting for their lives, after all those people have been murdered they're not going to want to kiss and make up and say everything's going to be okay. I think it's going to be a difficult discussion in Brussels also, because the closer you are to this Russian threat, the more real it is and the more frightening it is. And so what's happening in Ukraine, people in the Baltic states like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they can see it happening there. What's happening there, they can see happening in Poland. And so they're worried. They don't know what the right answer is. They're looking for American leadership. The sanctions have been great. NATO resolve has been great. We've come together. We've got a strategy. We're working. But thus far, this Russian humanitarian tragedy, this assault has not been stopped successfully. And Mr. Putin's trying to escalate it. And so the allies are going to be looking to the United States. What should be done Will the United States stand with us? Will the United States enable us to do more to help Ukraine? Will the United States want us to do less to try to obviate the threat? And I think, Laura, you know, the final line, bottom line on this is that no matter what NATO does or doesn't do, we don't have control 
over whether Mr. Putin's going to use a nuclear weapon or chemical weapons. He's going to do that when it's in his interest, on his decision. He's going to blame us regardless. And so we have to take that into account in working our way ahead. General Wesley Clark, I mean, describing the uncertainty of the wild card renders all of this really in many respects so difficult to predict. The president and NATO has their work cut out for him. And of course, it's in the interest of relieving this humanitarian crisis. General Wesley Clark, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Two breaking stories tonight, Ukraine, as we've discussed, and of course, domestically, the Supreme Court confirmation hearing still going on at this very hour for Judge Brown Jackson. Stick with us because the last Republican of the night is about to question the nominee, and she's already voiced her concerns. It could get contentious. We'll see next. Our breaking news, at any moment, Senator Marsha Blackburn will begin her questioning of Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. As Democrats praised Jackson, other Republicans ripped into the nominee with many accusations from, frankly, the fringe right. As we stand by, CNN Jessica Snyder takes us to the most contentious moments of the day so far. Katanji Brown-Jackson defending her record during hours of intense questioning from Republican senators, pushing back against their broad characterization that she's, quote, soft on crime. In order for us to have a functioning society, we have to have people being held accountable for committing crimes. But we have to do so fairly under our Constitution. As someone who has had family members on patrol and in the line of fire, I care deeply about public safety. But Judge Jackson's background has not insulated her from Republican attacks, particularly claims she handed down lenient sentences to convicted child pornography defendants. Senator Josh Hawley focused most of his questioning on an 18-year-old offender sentenced by Jackson to three months behind bars when prosecutors requested two years and their probation office recommended 18 months. And Hawley wasn't having it when Jackson explained her lighter sentence was in part because the defendant was close in age to some of the victims. Judge, he was 18. These kids are eight. I don't see in what sense they're peers. I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 16-month-old at home, and I live in fear that they will be exposed to, let alone exploited, in this kind of material. This particular defendant had just graduated from high school, and some of Perhaps not all when you were looking at the records, but some of the materials that he was looking at were older teenagers, were older victims. But you had discretion, Judge. You admit that, right? I just want to be clear. Senator, sentencing is a discretionary act of a judge. It's not a numbers game. Jackson also took heat for representing terrorism suspects detained at Guantanamo Bay. Why in the world would you call Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and George W. Bush war criminals in a legal filing? It seems so out of character for you. Well, Senator, I don't remember that particular reference, and I um, 
was representing my clients and making arguments. Democratic Chairman Dick Durbin later provided context, noting the filing was a procedural one against U.S. officials making claims on behalf of detainees, Jackson noting she had a duty to defend them. Federal public defenders don't get to pick their clients. They have to represent uh, whoever comes in. Republican Senator Ted Cruz pressed Jackson on her views of critical race theory, an idea that American institutions are inherently racist and something conservatives falsely claim is widely taught in elementary schools. Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. Jackson did have the chance to reflect on the historic nature of her nomination to be the first black woman on the high court. This nomination against that backdrop is significant to, to a lot of people. And I hope that it will bring confidence. It will help inspire people to understand that our courts are like them, that our judges are like them, doing the work, being a part of our government. I think it's very important. And this has been a marathon and intense question and answer session going on 13 hours now. It continues tomorrow, though, with 20-minute rounds, Laura, from each of the 22 senators on the committee. It will be the last day of questioning. And then the issue will turn to, will she get any Republican votes? Three Republicans voted for her less than a year ago to elevate her to the appeals court here in D.C. This time around, though, she is facing significant resistance from at least one of those senators, Lindsey Graham. Laura? Jessica Schneider, thank you so much for making it all um, so comprehensive for us. And as we await Senator Blackburn, I want to get some unique perspective on today's hearing from the first African-American woman to serve in the Senate and the first woman to serve on the Judiciary Committee. I want to bring in Carol Mosley Braun and also Danielle Holly Walker, dean of the Howard University School of Law, whose name was also floated as a possible Supreme Court nominee. Ladies, I'm privileged to have both of you on the panel with me tonight. Let me begin with you, um, Carol Mosley Braun, because you have a particularly unique perspective that I want people to hear. I mean, given the fact that you were the first African-American woman to the Senate, the first woman on the Senate Judiciary Committee, I do want to understand what this means to you and the significance of seeing now a black woman having a, as a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, to begin with, thank you very much for having me tonight to express my views. I am overjoyed that um, she has been nominated. Judge Jackson is eminently qualified on every front. This should be a, quote, bulletproof nomination. But the fact is that that some of the Republicans have decided to make this political theater. And so when you consider that all the old tropes are coming, I thought we had, frankly, I thought we were beyond Willie Horton. But what you got is the the criminal thing being dragged out against her uh, because of her race. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, let's just be clear. That's what's going on. And so she's getting pummeled in ways that other nominees have not because she is a black woman, because she is uh, she breaks the mold. She, in, in the history of this country, we have never had a black woman 
on the United States Supreme Court. And quite frankly, it's way past time. This woman has distinguished herself in every uh, in every engagement, every position that she's held. And so I am just, I'm like Senator Booker. I'm just overjoyed that she's there, that she comports herself with such dignity and such such a uh, uh, command of the of the of the law, and she's she's really doing a very very good job, not being uh, tripped up by some of these knuckle knuckle draggers. I mean, again, to make the point, nobody has mentioned January sixth in this hearing. I mean, they've 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 skipped around and talked and nitpicked her record down to including asking her about individual defendants that she sends. It's like, well, wait a minute. In the context of what's going on in this country not to mention the world right now, how can you do this uh, when the other uh, Supreme Court nominations just sailed through like they did? And, you know, interestingly enough, and I, I won't ask you to identify the people who you ca are calling knuckle-draggers in this particular moment in time, because I suspect that um, we could probably identify and guess on our own. But I do want to ask you, Danielle, because as um, Senator Mosley Braun was talking about the idea of her being singled out because of her race, we heard from Senator Lindsey Graham out of South Carolina, who was quite adamant that the double standard that was in place here had nothing to do with how um, she was being treated, but perhaps how others have been treated, trying to single out people like I know a friend of yours, um, Judge Childs from South Carolina, who was also identified as potential nominee to the Supreme Court. And I do wonder what you made of the idea of how she was constantly referenced, the discussions about how others have been treated from Kavanaugh to Amy Coney Barrett to even Alito. But what did you make of the presentation of the questioning by the likes of Senator Lindsey Graham and others on this issue comparing her with another potential nominee who was ultimately, as you know, not nominated, but will be up for consideration for a different judicial nomination. Well, first, I think Judge Jackson did an outstanding job today. She really demonstrated her legal expertise and that she's one of the brightest legal minds in the United States. Um, we saw Senator Graham bring up Judge Michelle Childs on the District Court of South Carolina, both yesterday in his opening statement and today during his questioning of Judge Jackson. And Judge Childs is also an outstanding jurist who is nominated to the DC Circuit. And I think it's really unfair to see her used as a political football in all of this. Um, she's an incredibly uh, thoughtful, well-respected person and will have her own confirmation hearing. And I think it was really unfair and also a false flag um, these women are not in competition. They are both outstanding, bright legal minds who will uh, hopefully both be confirmed to their various positions. You know, I, I also saw it as a squandered moment when he could have asked questions about this particular nominee, about her record, asking questions to which he wanted to have further illumination and instead focus on other areas. And I, I want to return to you because Senator Carol Mosley Braun, one of the things of a moment in history during the um, hearings of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I recall that you called then the Republicans' line of questioning personally offensive. And I wonder, as we're talking about the distinctions between today's Senate, we often hear about it, versus the Senate of um, years gone by, including that which now President Biden has derived from, what do you make about the comparison of how the Judiciary Committee operated at that time compared to now? Are you seeing the stark contrast? Or as you mentioned, the days of Willie Horton, you think are back again? 
Well, uh, yes, I, it is a different Senate. And, and that's, that is really the tragedy that I think all Americans should be concerned about. We, we, the, the loss of civility, the loss of bi- the ability to be bipartisan, um, uh, because the civility, manners, people just being nice to each other, that's gone, gone by, the, by the way. And the fact is, when I was in the Senate, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, there were moments that were difficult. Uh, I remember there was one of the senators who was on the committee at the time was comparing abortion to slavery. And quite frankly, it was almost, he looked at me when he was asked the question. It's like, what is going on here? Um, uh, but the fact of the matter is race it runs really close to the surface in our political discourse in this country. And quite frankly, I'm just delighted because Judge Jackson has done such a masterful job of not going there. She has, she has really been uh, above reproach in terms of her answering, answering these questions, even though some of them are very clearly racial and or racist, yeah. if you will, in, yeah. in nature. And uh, she's not taking the bait. She's been Senator, really good. So I can, I, well, I we, can be, I can take these things. <laughs> well, we will, we will see if she continues to act in the way that you both have described. Senator Blackburn is up now. I want to watch and we'll talk on the other side, ladies. And then she has experiences and education. And then coupling with that, hopes, desires, and a lot of drive that really make you the person that you are. And we have heard from your friends about how you are a friend. And you've been a mentor. And as one of my friends would say, and I bet you feel, kind of feel this void, you're the answer lady <laughs> for a lot of issues that friends would bring to you. Um, you love your family, and they obviously love you. And I wish you could see your dad's face. <laughs> it is wonderful. <laughs> he beams when you talk about uh, the things that he has taught you. But uh, all of that has been repeated time and again in letters for you. But it's important that we know this, and it's why we continue to ask you about your views on issue, because all of that goes into forming who you are and your worldview, and it all is applicable to the job that you've done in the past, and likewise, the job that you are going to do in the future. And it does have bearing on different issues. And it's been so interesting to me to get text messages from friends at home that are watching this. I had one from a friend from church. And she said, you know, she seems really likable, but I'm not sure I agree with her on the issues. And this is someone who is incredibly pro-life. And she's about my age, so she's a mom and a grandmom. And she is, this is a question that is important to her, to look at life. And Senator Feinstein talked about that issue with you a little earlier today. You've also said today that it would be inappropriate for you to share your views on political issues or issues that may become, might come before the court, like abortion. 
But I want to go to you on something you said when you were in private practice. Uh, You made your views on pro-life and the pro-life movement very clear. And, in fact, you attacked pro-life women. And this was in a brief that you wrote. You described them, and I'm quoting, hostile, noisy crowd of in-your-face protesters, end quote. And you advocated against these women's First Amendment right to express their sincerely held views regarding the sanctity of each individual life. And I'm a pro-life woman. 79% of the American women support restrictions of some type on abortion. And so I find it incredibly concerning that someone who is nominated to a position with life tenure on the Supreme Court holds such a hostile view toward a view that is held as a mainstream belief that every life is worth protecting. So how do you justify that incendiary rhetoric against pro-life women. Thank you, Senator. The brief that you're referring to um, was a brief that I filed on behalf of clients who were clients of my law firm. This Mm -hmm. is in, I believe, goodness, 1999 or 2000, maybe 2000 or 2001. Yeah. Um, I was an associate at a law firm, and I had uh, appellate experience because I had just finished my Supreme Court law clerk position. Um, And in the context of my law firm, um, I was asked to work on a brief uh, concerning a buffer zone issue Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts at the time. um, There were laws protecting uh, women who wanted to enter clinics. And there was a a First Amendment question about uh, the degree to which there had to be room around them uh, to enter the clinic. Right. And I I understand all of that. I'm asking about the rhetoric. Um, Senator, I drafted a brief along with okay. the partners in my law firm who reviewed it and we filed it on behalf of our client. Okay. In, in, in to advance our client's arguments that they wanted to make okay. in the case. Let me ask you this. When you go to church and knowing there are pro-life women there, do you look at them thinking of them in that way, that they're noisy, hostile, in your face, do, do you think of them? Do you think of pro-life women like me that way? Senator, that was a statement and a brief made okay. uh, an argument for my client. It's not the way that I think of or okay. characterize people. All right. Thank you for the clarification on, on that. Because I think even zealous advocacy doesn't allow that type of uh, rhetoric on a free speech issue. You know, Roe v. Wade, let's talk a little bit about that. It's come up, uh, touched today. 
uh, in my opinion, that was an awful act of judicial activism and has cost the lives of over 63 million unborn children. And nearly 50 years later, this shameful ruling remains binding precedent, but the battle is being fought in the courts. And as you know, and as we discussed when we visited, the Supreme Court is reconsidering whether the Constitution protects the right to an abortion in Dobbs. And if you're confirmed, you will be in a position to apply the court's decision in Dobbs, whatever that decision is going to be. And you've talked about following precedent and what the court decides. So do you commit to respecting the court's decision if it rules that Roe was wrongly decided and that the issue of abortion should be sent back to the states? Senator, whatever the Supreme Court decides in Dobbs will be the precedent of the Supreme Court. It will be uh, worthy of respect in the sense that it is the precedent and um, I commit to treating it as I would any other precedent of this. There's one other thing. One of the central issues in the Dobbs case is about the con- whether the Constitution protects the right to an abortion. So let's talk about that. Can you explain to me, on a constitutional basis, the court's decision in Roe and where is abortion protected in the Constitution? Senator, um, abortion is a right that the Supreme Court has recognized um, in the, um, is one of the kinds of rights that is unenumerated. Um, It is in that same category of rights that uh, the Supreme Court has recognized uh, but with, the text of the Constitution does not mention abortion. That is true. That yeah. is true. That is correct. So you agree that the Constitution does not mention the right to an abortion. And yet, through one of the most brazen acts of judicial activism, our Supreme Court created the right through Roe v. Wade. This is why... Americans, this is why so many women that I've talked to are really concerned about who sits on the federal bench. We need a justice who will adhere to the text of the Constitution. You've talked a little bit about that today as you talked about historical context. And they don't want justices who are going to invent rights out of whole cloth to serve a political interests. Um, let's, let's move on. Uh, I want to go to when you were at Harvard, your thesis entitled The Hand of Oppression, Plea Bargaining Processes. In that piece, you argued that judges have, and I'm quoting, I brought this up yesterday, personal hidden agendas that influence how they decide cases. So what personal hidden agendas do you harbor or do you think other judges harbor? Thank you, Senator. That um, line, uh, to the extent it it appears in my thesis, was written by uh, someone who had not gone to law school and was a senior in college who had spent 
a summer uh, at an internship working in making observations in the context of uh, a criminal justice internship. It is not a view okay. that I hold. Then what led you to that belief? I'm thinking back. It's been 30 years, okay. but I, the summer before We've just watched the year, questioning from Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn as she's continuing on day two of the historic confirmation hearings from Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's being asked now about her senior thesis. I want to bring back to the conversation former Senator Carol Mosley-Braun, the first black woman to serve in the Senate and first woman on the Judiciary Committee, and Danielle Holly-Walker, dean of the Howard University School of Law, also with us. Our Supreme Court reporter, Ariane DeVogue, she was in that Senate hearing all day long. Let me begin with you, Senator Mosley-Braun, because I have to ask, the idea that she was asked the question of, when you're in church, do you judge, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, women who support um, abortion or or against abortion, pro-life women, are we considered hostile in that respect? What was your reaction to that statement? Well, um, again, this is political theater. And what they're doing is playing to their political base. And so Senator Blackburn is making a point that she is pro-life. She said it four times, at least. And and so she's speaking to the voters out there who um, are looking for a pro-life Supreme Court. And uh, that's re- that that is what it comes down to. I was not a serious. I, I, you can't. It's hard to take some of these questions seriously because they really are about theater. They're about, they have nothing to do really with Judge Jackson's uh, uh, suitability for the court. My mentor in the Senate used, used to make the point that you look for people with a good head and a good heart. And this woman has clearly shown that she has both a good head, she's an esteemed uh, legal scholar, uh, and she's got a good heart as well. And so, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why they're doing it. Uh, It's called getting ready for the elections and the election cycle. And that's what it has to do with. Well, Ariane, let me bring you in here. You've been in this proverbial theater, so to speak, all day long for the last two days, watching very closely. I wonder, have have any of the statements and questions that have been offered and presented by the Republican members of the committee, have they moved the needle in the direction away from her trajectory as the potential next confirmed Supreme Court justice? It doesn't feel like that right now. One interesting thing, what you were just talking about, about that exchange on abortion, it really does go to show what the stakes are, though, because the senator was talking about a case that the court is currently considered. And that's interesting because this uh, nomination process is playing out while the Supreme Court across the street is considering whether to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, But as far as your other question, I think perhaps the most emotion today came on this allegation on whether or not she was soft on crime. You saw this morning uh, the Democrat, Durbin, uh, talk to her about the fact that a Republican uh, member had said that she had been too lenient with her sentences for um, uh, child porn offenders. And at that time, he said, how does that make you feel to be accused of that? And she came right out of the gate saying, as a judge and as a mother, it couldn't be further from the truth. And then as we went through the members, some of them all mentioned it. And finally, we got to that Republican, uh, Senator Hawley, and he really looked at a handful of her cases. And he said that he thought that she'd been too lenient. And she pushed back. And she said, look, I am the only one who actually saw the evidence in these heinous cases. She went on and on about the fact that she had seen it. And her job as a judge was to try to figure out the sentence. And she said, as things stand, 
The guidelines are outdated in this area. She went to great lengths to explain it. And she said, in fact, if you looked at her record, what she did was just like many other judges are doing right now because the guidelines are outdated. But you really saw that push and pull there. And it was some of the sharpest exchanges we've seen today. It does underscore the idea of discretionary sentencing. It sounds like, in many respects, some of the people who are asking the questions have more of an issue with the nature of discretion in the criminal justice system than the actual application of that discretion as well. It's a part of a larger conversation, frankly. Dean, I want to bring you in because, as you've seen, there has been a number of instances where the faith, the religion of this nominee has been raised in conversation, either from Senator Lindsey Graham, obviously now with Senator Marsha Blackburn. Others have touched upon this very issue. It often harkens back to the, they believe, the way in which now Justice Amy Coney Barrett was treated during her confirmation process. What strikes you about this line of questioning? I think one is that it really can throw a nominee off because this was the first question of the day that she was offered is, what religion are you? Uh, which Senator Graham asked. And I felt that she handled it extremely well uh, by talking about you know, her faith, but also saying that she considered her faith in some ways to be not relevant uh, to um, the hearing at hand because we don't have religious tests. For judges, I thought the best moment of the day on this came from Senator Cory Booker, where he really talked to her, went back uh, to that line and allowed her to really talk about her relationship with her parents and what it is like to be a working mother, because we have to remember that she would be a working mother on the Supreme Court, which is a really important perspective. And I think we got a lot fuller idea of who she is and her character, which again shows us that she is headed towards confirmation, it looks like, because she has shown just incredible judicial temperament and her outstanding credentials all day, and even the ability to handle tough personal questions like what was asked about her religion. And of course, we recognize this is now her fourth opportunity before the Senate Judiciary Committee, one in the district court, one, of course, as a circuit court judge, one as a member of the Sentencing Commission. And if she's confirmed, she would join another working mother, that, of course, of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, which, again, here we are in Women's History Month, and we're in the year of 2022. And I don't recall the same emphasis being placed on male nominees about their balancing of work and parenthood. But I guess that's a question and a conversation for yet another day. Ladies, thank you for your time and your interesting conversation. Carol Mosley-Braun, Danielle Holly-Walker, and Ariane DeVogue, thank you so much. And we will be right back. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Don Lemon tonight with, of course, Don Lemon. Live from Ukraine starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.